Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. On today's show, legal journalist, author, and co-host of The View, Sonny Hostin. Hostin talks about never being formally introduced as a co-host on the show in 2016. Whether you love The View or hate The View, it is an iconic show. It has been on for 24 years. Barbara Walters is an icon. And I worked hard to become a co-host of The View. You know, I grew up in poverty and I grew up, you know, wanting to be Barbara Walters and and watching this icon. And then I just kind of got slipped in and I didn't get the welcome our newest co-host, Sonny Austin. That's a pretty big indignity. And when I asked to be announced, I was told it was too late and that everybody just knew I was a co-host. So, you know, why did I need that? And it wasn't so much a need, it was that I deserved it. Calling out The View's parent company after an internal investigation uncovered racist comments made about her by a former network executive. So I wrote the forward, fully expecting actually to be fired. And the strangest thing happened. I got a call from the president of Disney and he said, I read your book. And I was like waiting for the, and you can't come back. And he just said, I am sorry. And this type of thing shouldn't happen. And you are a valued member of our family and you are a star. And we are going to recalibrate our relationship with you. And we are going to make you a voice within this company for diversity and inclusion and equity. And since then, I have been given a position of of power within the company. And it's been kind of remarkable. So it was worth it. Being a vocal ally to the LGBTQ plus community. Maybe it's because I grew up in the Bronx or grew up with such an open-minded family. I was just so horrified when I learned how pervasive this discrimination was. And it almost seemed to me like it was okay to discriminate against this community. And, you know, I've been a lifelong Catholic. And when I learned that that type of discrimination was pervasive within my own faith, honestly, it caused me to leave the church for quite a while. And she sounds off on her least favorite guest on The View. Hint, it's not Donald Trump Jr., but we get into that too. She is the guest that I disliked the most actually that and we've had a lot of them <laughs> yes that I that I haven't enjoyed but I enjoyed her the least shut up Evan shut up Evan shut up Evan 
Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm Evan Ross Katz, joined once again by my producer, Matt, aka Stormageddon. Matt, hi. Hi. And we have a little bit of a special guest, a minor, not minor, a major blast from the past. Uh, The former producer of Shut Up Evan, our season one producer, Alden Peters. Alden, hi. Hello. How are you? I miss that. Hello. It is good to be back. It's very good to have you back. Um, And I'm really glad that you both are here today. You know, it feels a little bit like there was that uh, reunion recently at the Fresh Prince of Mm Bel-Air, and they had both actresses that played Aunt Viv Uh together for the photo shoot. And this kind of feels like one of those moments when, um, you know, I'm I'm just delighted to have have you both here. And, And honestly, I'm glad to have built this thing called Shut Up Evan collaboratively with the both of you and to have you, you know, joining forces in this moment and it's important that we're all here because there's been some big news that broke so we're recording this on friday you're listening to this on tuesday um and the cock destroyers uh our beloved cock destroyers comprised of rebecca moore and sophie anderson announced on thursday that they are breaking up so just for those of them that have been listening to the show for a while, we had Rebecca on last season. Alden, I, I recall you really liked that episode in particular. What oh, yeah. were you so struck by about Rebecca? I was so struck by how much she opened up to you, one. And I think that especially when we think about folks that are in adult entertainment, I think we can really easily caricaturize them into something. And to hear this, like, fully-fledged human being on the podcast um, talking about herself and her business um, and was really, really awesome. Yeah, I totally concur. Now, there are probably going to be some people out there listening right now that have no idea what the Cock Destroyers are. Um, but let me ask first, Matt, I mentioned to you that I wanted to discuss this topic, but I kind of mentioned it last minute. Uh-huh. Are you familiar with the Cock Destroyers? Not much more than by name. I know I listened to that episode, but I listened to a lot of last season's episodes to prepare for this gig. I would lie if I said I remembered everything about all of them. But I do remember the interview being really charming with Rebecca and like it just being really engaging and interesting to hear. Uh, but I am not a uh, Cock Destroyers super fan. So I, I like some of the audience might need a little uh, background. Oh, you're in for you're in for a treat, Matt. <laughs> well, unfortunately, the, the timeline now perhaps maybe comes to an end. So maybe this will be a look back rather, unfortunately. Sure, yeah. um, but briefly, I mean, Rebecca Moore and Sophie Ederson were two uh, sex workers and pornographic actresses in the UK that kind of blew up Ian had this sort of huge viral fame several years ago um, because, I mean, the backstory is kind of funny. So they were they were hosting a gangbang, um, which was sort of prototypical in their line of work. And the two of them would often work together where the two of them would be the two females and they would have a bunch of men come to, you know, the location and, you know, partake in the things that one does at a gangbang. And they were looking for more people to fill the second slot because they had a first round that completely sold out. And they were like, you know what? Let's do a second round of gangbang. Gangbangs, plural, a second round, whatever. More gangbang. <laughs> and so they put a Twitter video out um, basically saying uh, that they were looking for more people and announcing themselves, sort of trying to get people enticed by announcing the fact that what what distinguishes them as sex workers? Well, it's that they are cock destroyers. <laughs> so they put this video out in which with their British accents and they're just sort of very unique enthusiasm that the two of them sort of conjure. 
they put this video out. It went viral on the internet. Um, and then from there, they kind of just developed this viral fame that sort of followed them around for a long time. On a deeper level, though, for a lot of people, myself included, Rebecca and Sophie kind of meant something more than just, like, meme culture. And I think, Alden, perhaps what you're speaking to about why the podcast, like, reverberated for you as it did is because of this quality that I think that they both share, which is you think you're coming to them for a laugh, and maybe you'll get your laugh, um, but they have a bigger message around just self-love, empowerment, mm-hmm. and just uh, the belief in oneself. I mean, there's so many themes present in what they do. And talking about it, I remember I profiled the two of them for Interview Magazine in 2019. And it was difficult to like convey to an editor you know, who these uh-huh. women are and yeah. all that they give us because... You know, I just remember having to show them some of the memes. And for context for people that don't know, Rebecca and Sophie both have triple K breasts. So just ginormous breasts, tiny, tiny waist, you know, just like platinum blonde hair. They're like real life Barbie dolls. They're just beautiful inside and out. Such Mm -hmm. like lovely, effusive personalities. But it's hard to sort of convey all that they are and all that they mean. And so when they announced this breakup, I was like half being hyperbolic about just, you know, as I tend to be on the internet, but also kind of rather heartbroken at seeing these two people. And they're not a couple for those that, for those that that are curious, they just are kind of business partners, but in their line of work and the level of intimacy that comes with their job, I think that there is a sort of blurring of the line. Mm -hmm. Alden, did you happen to see the conversation that was happening online yesterday in reaction to the news? No. Well, first I want to say they also have, Slag Wars, um, the show that men.com did, they did one season of it, but you get to see them as people so much more in that, especially like Sophie, when they have to like eliminate people, she was like, she couldn't eliminate someone. She felt so bad. But yeah, anyways, the no. So when I was talking to you, I actually hadn't been, I don't spend a lot of my day on social media. And so when you said that they broke up, I just pretended like I knew what you were talking about and then very quickly went and looked up uh, what happened. Yeah, and it it is a bizarre what had happened. I I was a little reticent to talk about this because there's a lot of rumors going around right now about the breakup, but I did speak to Rebecca prior to taping this right now just to get her consent because she's a friend, you know, and someone I care about really deeply. And I want to say something too, for people being like, well, well, what is it that makes you care so much about these people? Not just me, everyone. I'll give you a small detail. There's something that Sophie said yesterday when she announced the breakup online, where she said to all of my men, women, and non-binary followers. And I just think it's little details like that about the two of them, just sort of identifying the fact that not all of their followers identify as male or female. It's small details like that, that these people, these two women were able to make a lot of people feel seen and so many various aspects of life and and destigmatized not just sex work a lot of things I think they unlocked a lot of um, self-acceptance for a lot of people and you can say like it's just the internet it's just they're just memes and blah 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 and like maybe they are and maybe that's how you view it but I I just want to say like there are a lot of people out there who and I feel this way deeply I laugh and but I mean it like I it, it made me really sad yesterday that they broke up anyway It's like your parents announcing they're getting a divorce, kind of. Completely. It really, I mean, completely. It is that. And so basically, I don't want to speak too much to rumor, but there are rumors right now that it is not an amicable split. 
and that there are forces in Sophie's life right now that are sort of keeping her away from her business with Rebecca. Rebecca mentioned that she is using patience right now with the hope that, you know, there can be some sort of reconciliation. I really want to believe it's not the end of the Cock Destroyers. Um, and I really hope to have them back together on this show in season three. I'm putting that energy out there. But I would say just for people right now to send Rebecca and send Sophie some love. And I think uh, I just am going to miss that presence of seeing the two of them online. I'm sad I didn't order a cameo sooner. And I, I just, like I said, it's like there needs to be a world in which I do not want the Cock Destroyers timeline to end with 2021 uh, on it. That just feels wrong to me. But you said that she said that she is like practicing patience. And I feel like that also good just goes to show her heart. But that is also that's also a potentially good sign, right? That doesn't sound that doesn't sound as final as it could be for sure. Absolutely. And my sense was definitely again, sense, I don't want to say fact or, or what would not but my sense was that the hope is that I think sometimes people come into people's lives and they can control them in a way and and hopefully we all in our lives, we all have the autonomy to make our own choices and do not feel like we are at the whim of others, new figures in our life who come forward and perhaps stir us in directions that we maybe ourselves do not want to go. So we wish them the best. Um, but from the cock destroyers uh, onward and upward, Alden, when you left at the end of season one, I was very sad to see you go, but you had important work that you were endeavoring onto. And now it's like, it's funny. What is this? Like the end of season one was, I don't even know at this point, 2020, I don't even right? Remember. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't even know. But it's anyway, you left us and you went with the goal of making something magical and something magical has, I was gonna say it's materialized, but you've built it. I don't, to say it materialized kind of implies it just appeared one day, but you worked really hard. Tell us about what you've been working on these last few months. Oh, for sure. So, well, one, it is really nice to be here. Matt, you're excellent. I've been listening to the podcast. Thank you. Um, I also listened to when Cyberpunk 2077 came out and you were doing, you did like a Cyberpunk week with like Lore Party uh -huh. and some other like podcast networks. I listened to a few of those also. Oh, thank you. That's awesome. But yeah, so I, let me, I will say this. So like when we were doing season one, it was really cool, Evan, because you were like in your element, right? This is like something you're so good at and it was really cool to see. Um, and as people if they've been listening since then know, like I'm a filmmaker, my day job's doing like editing and graphics for media companies. So like doing podcasts was never my passion, but it was definitely in my, within a wheelhouse that I could kind of pull off. Um, but I was also like super happy to see you in your element. And this is right after I finished this short film called Femme, which I directed, um, but it was about the writer and the star, Corey Campercioli. He wrote it kind of coming from his experience as an effeminate gay man. And so it was like two projects that I was working on where it was like, I'm so proud to have worked on them, but they weren't from my own personal like passion. And it didn't feel like I was just craving like to do that for myself. You know, I felt like I was finally ready. And so I was talking to working with um, this produce, the producer of Femme, Benno Rosenwald, and we're talking about doing projects that were kind of in my interest and that turned into a queer science fiction film. Um, I'm a huge sci-fi person. I always have been. It's what inspired me to be a filmmaker. 
Um, but I hadn't really ever found a way to reconcile like that nerd identity and gay identity, which I know I've jo joked about this to you, Evan, which is like, I feel more comfortable sometimes in nerd spaces like Comic-Con than necessarily like at a gay bar. And I feel like in the genre, there's just like not queer people put front and center that often, for sure. especially not in films, right? Yeah. I know in like a lot of other kind of media for sure, but not in, in like film stuff. Uh, so I, that's what I wrote. Um, I wrote this like sci-fi film that's built and inspired by queer history. So the treatment of homosexuals in the 50s and 60s um, in a sci-fi world where attraction to androids is a sickness and a crime like homosexuality was back then. Um, and so me and Benno were ready to make this film. And this is about the time that season one ended uh, and I had to like go off to make this film. Um, and then the pandemic got really bad. Uh, and it was going to be so cost prohibitive to make the film because of COVID safety. Um, so our compromise was shooting one proof of concept scene. And so we got this super talented crew together, super talented cast and made this like we sh I rewrote one of the scenes to make it a little bit longer, but we just shot a proof of concept scene um, just to see what we can pull off with a crew of like 10 people. Uh, and truly no money. But it turned out so well, we submitted to film festivals just to see what happened. And a couple things have happened. One, it's played. Um, it's played at three so far and there's some more on the way. And the other thing too is like, which is really cool. It's like doing a project that I was super passionate about and super um, excited to do. It led to the opportunity for me to go pitch at a real studio, like a real project at a real studio, uh, which was my first one, the first the first time I've done anything like that. And uh, it was very intense. It was over Zoom, thankfully, so I had notes. And it didn't go terribly. Uh, they're having me come back for some more stuff, which is good. Uh, if it's not a no, I feel like that's always the, the right thing to do. But this is where we are right now. And just because I, we need to say the name of this project, it's, it's called Friend of Sophia. I know that the, the proof of concept is called Friend of Sophia. Is that the name of the larger film? So, yeah, so when we split off this first, I like that I did that whole spiel and didn't even say the title. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. I didn't want to, like, interrupt you and say the title. <laughs> no, no. So, yeah, the whole, the film itself is called The Robosexual. And we originally were submitting this proof of concept as The Robosexual. And I was like, Benno, we have to change the title. Otherwise, if we make this full film, we can't, we can't call it that anymore. So the short, the short proof of concept is called Friend of Sophia. Um, and it's kind of like the way back then you would say friend of Dorothy, mm -hmm. are you a friend of Dorothy as kind of code? That's sort of like a code for people that are um, attracted to androids in this world. And if people are interested in learning more about this project, where can we send them? Oh, I have news for them if they're interested, is that um, we still are really want to make this full piece and doing just this little proof of concept, it's about six minutes, showed that what I was thinking all along is that like the sci-fi genre is an excellent way to tell queer stories and that, you know, using genre shorthand is a really good way to also get like genre fans to understand the queer experience. Um, so we're super excited to make the rest of this movie, but uh, we definitely need some help to make that happen. So on Monday, we are launching a Kickstarter and there is a link below in the show notes. Yeah. Um, that you can go to. Um, and it has a ton of like behind the scenes, like 
GIFs and images and all the information about the project. And if you could at least share it with folks um, to your listeners, please. And if you if you don't feel like you are interested in sci-fi, and if you don't uh, and you can't contribute and you don't want to share it, that's okay. Just please send me nudes. There you go. Yeah. A good compromise. We made that clear in season one, but let's just say we're making it yes. clear that is a continued pursuit. It's not just a yes. one-time yes. ask. Um, I do want to just give you a little bit of a cosign real quick, though. I, for people that don't know, Alden and I used to work together at a company that shall not be named, and it was a pretty lackluster experience much of the time, but the few moments from that company that I am most proud of all have to do with Alden and all have to do with Alden's vision. And I want to bring up like one specifically, it was the beginning of season 10 of RuPaul's Drag Race and the entire cast was coming in and we had never done something on that scale ever. And Alden, I don't know if you, even if you remember like those pre-production meetings where we were like, where we couldn't even get a conference room sometimes. Yeah. And there was this team led by Alden and there was, there are so many considerations when you're, when you are doing an interview with the, we had 10 cast members plus me. So think of all the angles that are needed and think about the lighting and the sound equipment. There's, there's so many elements and Alden not only pulled it off, he concepted it. We like created this awesome, it's on YouTube. You can watch this. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to say the name of the company. Yeah. Search Evan Ross Katz Drag Race Season 10 on YouTube. It's a 50 minute interview. That is all Alden. And also all and of those. Not yeah. only that, that was the round table, but at the same time, we were breaking them off individually into the studio because we had like, three ancillary Facebook video, because that was all the rage back then, pieces of content too. So we had to corral the entire season 10 cast of drag queens in drag uh, to do this whole thing. That was... And mind you, they're very new at that point because they were just beginning the whole drag race experience. So anyway, that was... I, I really... I, I look back on that video and that experience so fondly. Um, but also just all of my old YouTube videos that I used to do, those were all... All of them were Alden and they... The reason that they looked so polished and the reason why I probably have the career that I have today is largely because of how good you made me look time and time again. And so um, thank you. I want to encourage everyone to check out this film, check out this Kickstarter and support Alden Peters in all ways because he's really making work that's important and that is adding nuance to the amount of LGBTQ plus content out there. It's great that we have, you know, films like Love, Simon, but there are a lot of other stories to tell. And I think films like Tangerine, for instance, are really yes. great examples of this and, and films like The one you are making wait but before i go evan um i actually need you for something so i need you to explain this um this to me because i feel like i blinked and i totally missed everything that happened with the um because i feel like okay first of all tamisha iman tuesday happened on may the 4th so i was very into all the star wars stuff going on and I feel mm-hmm. like I blinked and I missed and there were 20 live streams and Candy Muse was there and Eureka and then Tamisha's site got hacked or something. And I was, that was a moment where I was like, this is a time when I need Evan Ross Katz. <laughs> so if you could please kind of explain all of that, because this is, it's one of those moments where it's like, I need Evan to just explain this to me. So please. 
Yeah, it's times like this that you kind of realize the shortcomings of a, a, you know, a website or a newspaper like the New York Times. It's like they're doing a lot of important work, but they forget stories like this. I didn't see anything in the Times about the cock destroyers. And it's kind <laughs> of like, you know, the media, there is a, the hole in the media right now, you know? I can tell you about it briefly, only because, can I just say this? Okay, so like basically on, I think it was Saturday night, or, or this at this point it will be two Saturdays ago, Tamisha did this like 30-minute video that I think was uploaded on Instagram it might live elsewhere. I mean, please mind you, anyone listening to this, I'm going to misstate some of the details of this story because it's such a winding road and I don't want to get too lost down it. But Tamisha Iman, who was a contestant on the 13th season of RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, and also just a fan favorite, a really the kind of queen that walked in with a gravitas that made you know that she was one to watch. And she proved that in spades. So she did this video and in the video... She announced the fact that she was kind of frustrated with some of the things that had been said about her runway looks, some of the critiques that had been made about her runway looks during the show. Specifically, she called out Monet Exchange, who is one of the uh, winners of All Stars, the All Stars format of Drag Race, and also was a contestant on season 10 of the show. And so what Tamisha announced, you know, one segment of this 30-minute video was that she said that on Tuesday, mind you, again, this came out on Saturday, on Tuesday... I am going to read you. She announced the fact that it was Saturday and in three days time, she was going to read Monet. And the reason why I think myself and so many people immediately clipped this out and just knew that something, something iconic was brewing was because it reminded me of like, do you remember when we were younger, when the WWE was the WWF mm -hmm. and like Triple H or Kane? I mean, this is the, this is about You're going us, way back. Know. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, and this is a little off the beaten path for my my typical interests, but I was a child of the WWF. I mean, Same. Trish Stratus was my mother. Um, and so I remember when they used to come down, it would be like Thursday Smackdown, and they would be like, I will see you at WrestleMania this Sunday. Yeah. It was like, I can't deal with you now, but I will deal with you on Sunday. And consider this right now, this is an appetizer, and I'm letting you know that I am preparing the main course. And so Tamisha's line, perhaps by intention and perhaps by that magic thing that is just, you know, uh, how things get received, right? Sometimes it's like you hit record. And I remember like Jasmine Masters and I oop. That was just a moment that was captured on camera and kind of became indelible in my hippocampus and many others. Um, and this is one of those moments where it just, the preparation for the read was presented. So then Tuesday rolls around are you still with me alden mm -hmm. <laughs> you lost me a little bit at the wrestling but i'm back okay it's, okay fine. I'm Wait, back, I'm oh back you weren't a, you, you weren't a child of wrestling because it wasn't so not science fiction enough yeah i don't know for some reason you would think a bunch of like shiny muscular men would in short shorts would definitely draw my attention but for some reason yeah. it just didn't Okay, I thought maybe this was going to be like another one of our intersection points, but okay. Okay, so she announces that she's going to read Tuesday. Tuesday comes along. 8.05 p.m. Eastern Standard Time is when this, this is announced. And it's going to be on the Tamisha Iman Network because Tamisha Iman has a network because of course she has a network, right? This network exists on YouTube, but hey, it's a network. So <laughs> I am like ready. I had Real Housewives of New York premiere at 9 p.m. I was like, I have 55 minutes to to let this unravel. I sign on at 8 o'clock thinking I'm early to the show. But no, I'm late because Tamisha has started the live early. I heard it started like around 7.45 when it was all said and done. And basically the live was quite rambling. 
Tamisha was not in drag, though though she said that she had intended to be, but there, there were reasons why she wasn't. She might have gone on to explain this, and I missed it, but I did not catch that. Um, not trying to put out misinformation. But she basically said that due to technical difficulties and things, the read would be pushed back to Wednesday. Um, and it would be behind a $25 paywall that was a part of the Tamisha Iman Network. Both of you, by the way, just because people can't see right now, both Matt and Alden bowed their heads at that <laughs> news um, in defeat. Um, so that is kind of where things netted out. The last I heard was so she that- never, okay. Cause I, I'd heard about some paywall thing, but she didn't even do a read mm-hmm. on that Tuesday. No. Okay. No, she did not do a read on that Tuesday. She eventually did something in which she sat down with Candy Muse, who's another contestant from Drag Race season 13, and apparently they kind of buried the hatchet of a feud that had happened on the show. Well, that's good. But I want to kind of just say, yes, I mean, great. Yay, $25 gets you, you know, the resolution of a feud you probably weren't thinking about. (laughs) But I do want to say, at the end of the day, because people are kind of like, well, what, you know, there are some moments that just kind of stay with people like me. Alden, you remember the Meryl scream was something for season one. It was just like, that was the thing that like was my go-to reaction. There are some things, Dakota Johnson Mm -hmm. is another one. There are just things that I and others glob onto and kind of some fall through the cracks and some some stay with you. The fact that, again, I'm going to come back to this because I think there's something there. Just announcing that you are going to read someone days in advance, it's very iconic behavior. <laughs> Few would dare to do it. Few could pull it off. And so people are kind of... Um, dragging the fact that she didn't end up reading Monet. But I just want to say that wasn't the point. I love Monet and I love Tamisha. It was never about Tuesday at 8.05 p.m. Well, that too is iconic, but it didn't matter. I wasn't really, I was watching on Tuesday at 8.05 just to see what happened. But the really, the what had really happened had already happened when that video came out. Again, pre-announcing your read I'm in. I'm sold. So that the read didn't live up to the hype or or whatever, that to me is sort of missing the point of this whole, you know, air quotes, cultural moment. Actually, let's remove the air quotes. I really think it was a big cultural moment for people. And it was one of those moments that so many people DM'd me. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez DM'd me to say LMAO about one of the videos that I had posted about Tamisha, which just tells you... Uh, that this is big. This this is news. And the New York Times, again, they are mm. failing us. Um, no, but needless not to say- Not the first time, not the last time they're going to fail us. Exactly. exactly. So I'm not sure if I like completely put a button on this, but I, my, I guess my point is it doesn't really need a button. Basically what happened was- you know, one person got on the internet and said they were going to take down another person. In the end, no one got taken down, which, you know, hey, great. You know, everyone won. And uh, we got to just further fall in love with Tamisha. And for those out there that put down that $25 a month, wow, God bless. Um, but Tamisha's wallet got bigger as a result. And hey, I am a fan of LGBTQ plus people uh, getting coin in their bank account. And if you guys are regretting that $25 per month you're putting into... <laughs> the Tamisha Mon Network, feel free to slip that over to the Kickstarter link in the show notes below. Yes. I love that. <laughs> and I think you'll get a little bit more for what you bargained for uh, from you, Alden. But uh, yeah, so that's that's the news right now in the gay world. Alden Peters has a new <laughs> film coming out. The Cock Destroyers have disassembled. And Tamisha Iman is announcing that on Tuesday... She is going to read your ass. <laughs> um, and so I think that kind of summarizes everything that we've got. Um, B, 
Before I turn it over, Alden, any parting words for our season two listeners besides sending nudes? Uh, well, I was just going to say, definitely yeah. send nudes. I won't send them back just so we're clear. It's it's just uh, a one-way street. It's a one-way thing just, just so we we're clear on that transaction. But no, my only thing is like, I'm just so glad that the fan base is still here. I'm so happy with how the podcast has turned out. And it's one of the things that I'm the most proud of that I've done. I feel like all the things that Evan, the two of us have worked on, I'm very proud of as I look back on kind of like what you were mentioning earlier, all that kind of stuff is like, oh no, this is the stuff that was actually really good. It, you know, cause like as you're just producing, producing, producing more and more content, um, I would say, I don't know, can't wait for season three. I mean, I'm one of, I'm one of them now. I'm now one of like the fans and listeners. So I don't really know what the message is other than I just can't wait for, for what happens next and the kind of guests you're going to get and where the podcast is going to go. Can we put to bed any rumors that you left the show after season one because you and I were feuding? No. <laughs> we got to keep okay. that going. Right. The drama. It, yeah, no. It, it sells the I show. I was giving you an out there, but if you want to air our laundry. No, uh, really quick, before you thank Alden, I just want to say I want to thank Alden also because Alden gave me such a smooth runway to step into something that was incredible already and that is just been such a huge part of my life already in such a short amount of time. Um, and I couldn't have jumped into this role without Alden's prep and uh, welcoming me and making me feel like a part of the show before I even started. So thank you for that as well. Oh my gosh, this is so amazing. Do you guys want to say something nice about working with me or? <laughs> I'll get to that. <laughs> Silence. Silence. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but on, honestly, Alden, I think if anything has been made clear today, it's how anyone who likes any aspect of this show, the show is very much built on the hard work and uh, no blood, but the sweat and tears of Alden. And uh, we're all so very grateful. So now we are going to turn it over to, I got to say real quick, this interview is super important to me. There are guests that are on my bucket list that I just kind of didn't think would happen because I know how the PR mechanism over at Disney works. And I am shaking to welcome the Sunny Hostin. Let's get into it. She is the three-time Emmy award-winning legal journalist and co-host of the most important daytime television talk show in history, The View. After graduating from Notre Dame Law School, she began her career as an appellate law clerk and went on to become a trial attorney for the Justice Department as well as a federal prosecutor. During her time as Assistant U.S. Attorney, she was awarded the Special Achievement Award by Attorney General Janet Reno for her prosecution of child sex predators. And if that wasn't enough, she also recently authored her very first novel, Summer on the Bluffs, the first in her upcoming three-book fiction series. But it's not her first book. Last fall, she released her national best-selling book, I Am These True a memoir of identity, justice, and living between worlds to rave reviews. A sought-after public speaker, she has delivered a TED Talk called A Possibility Model and spoken at and moderated panels for the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, Corporate Council Women of Color, and the National Bar Association. She's also served as a witness at the Federal Judiciary's Congressional Hearing for the Public's Right of Access to the Courts. Try saying that 10 times fast. She is unflappable. She is one of the best in this industry, bar none. She's kind, she's smart, she's considered, she's prepared. There is nobody better. Can you tell I'm a fan? I am delighted to honor the great Sunny Hostin. Sunny, again, I just got to say thank you so much for making the time. Anyone listening to this podcast knows that I worship at the altar of the view. <laughs> so to have one of the preeminent co-hosts on the show today, it's such an honor. 
Oh, well, it is my pleasure and my honor. You know, I am your fan. So <laughs> I was thrilled to be asked to do this with you. <laughs> Wonderful. So I want to start by going back to your early days of your professional life. You were a federal prosecutor specializing in child sex crimes before you started your career on television. Can you talk about the compartmentalization process in witnessing such moral and ethical atrocities while also having a job to do. I just, I can't even imagine. I was not great at that. <laughs> <laughs> As you can see, uh, anybody that knows me and, and watches me today, I'm not great at that. I went into that particular line of work because I love kids. I love children. I come from a family of educators, of teachers. I've taught myself. I actually taught eighth graders, Greek mythology, believe it or not. And I've always felt that the people that we need to protect in our society are those that are most vulnerable, right? Those that are marginalized. And when you think about it, that's usually the elderly and children. Right. And I took it personally when people took advantage and harmed children. So seeing those things happen to kids that were three years old, four years old, five years old, it was just really hard for me. Um, a lot of people, a lot of prosecutors that I know stopped doing the work because it's so hard to do. That wasn't the case for me. I had children and then moved to New York and certainly I still take the work with me, which is why I'm still involved actually with advocating on behalf of children and women who have been victimized by criminals, really, but people that victimize women and children. And I, I'm part of the board of Safe Horizons. And um, I helped pass in a tiny, small way, the um, Child Victimization Act. So the people that have been victimized can now bring their cases even after being an adult. But I, I was not good at it. And uh, I will tell you, even now, I can still see the pictures of some of the children, the pictures that were taken after they were brutalized. I can see them as if I was trying the case, you know, tomorrow. So mm. it's something that never leaves you. And I was, I was actually just speaking with Ben Crump today. And he was saying that what struck him so much, and it struck me too, is when you're looking at the Chauvin trial, it's like the worst thing is that George Floyd was murdered in front of all of us, right? And the worst thing is that his family has lost him forever. But think about the witnesses that were testifying and how traumatized they are. And they're crying because they feel so helpless. The witnesses in my cases were like that. And I think when you prosecute those cases as I did, you bring that trauma, you carry it with you. And I, I still carry a little bit of that if I'm being honest. <laughs> yeah, no, by all means. I think one of the great things about your position on The View is you're able to bring a lot of that legal know-how as well as that empathy onto the show, especially when discussing difficult topics involving the law. Speaking of The View, you started your tenure on The View as a guest host and then were promoted to co-host in August 2016, which was a blessed day, I can tell you that much. I believe you are the only co-host in history to not be formally announced as such on the show. Yes. That had to have bothered you. It bothered yes. me. I know yes. there were some other indignities that you felt early on. I'm just wondering how that made you feel in your early days on the show. You know, it still bothers me. <laughs> it is true. I think there are many communities that suffer these microaggressions. That's what we call them today. I, I call them indignities. Marginalized communities deal with, with this so often. And I'm really good at speaking out for other people. I've always been good at that. 
I haven't always been great about speaking out for myself. So I knew that I was experiencing these indignities like the fact that I had been given a dressing room on the third floor when all of the other hosts had dressing rooms on the second floor. And that may not seem like it means a lot, but my dressing room was where all the guests went to the bathroom and the sink was in my dressing room. So people would go to the bathroom and then wash their hands in my dressing room and leave you know, tissue and, and paper towels in, in, in my wastebasket. And I, I just thought, would they do that to Whoopi or Sarah or Megan? Like they would not do that, but they did it to me because they thought, you know, little of me. They didn't think as much of me. That's, that was my takeaway. You know, I was never announced. And everyone knows that that's a big deal because, because whether you love The View or hate The View, it is an iconic show. It has been on for 24 years. Barbara Walters is an icon. And I worked hard to become a co-host of The View. You know, I grew up in poverty and I grew up, you know, wanting to be Barbara Walters and, and watching this icon. And then I just kind of got slipped in and I didn't get the welcome our newest co-host, Sunny Austin. That's a pretty big indignity. And when I asked to be announced, I was told it was too late and that everybody just knew I was a co-host. So, you know, why did I need that? And it wasn't so much a need, it was that I deserved it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and and we as the viewers, can I just say, we wanted to have that moment to welcome you and watch the confetti cannon shoot out the confetti <laughs> yeah. and burst out into applause as we've done for so many other co-hosts. You know, it's interesting having this candid and frank conversation with you now because this is your current employer. And yeah. I imagine there must be a level of perhaps awkwardness or or... I don't know, fear maybe, you tell me, but in terms of speaking, you know, your book, I am these truths, these are your truths, but in yeah. speaking your truth in your given situation, what is that like for you? You know, it was interesting when this sort of, I guess it was a scandal, you know, <laughs> the scandal broke that I had, in fact, all those things that I was thinking had been happening to me were happening to me. There was an internal investigation as, and as it turned out, the person that was sort of in charge of my career at ABC had said not just one thing about me, actually, a couple of things like, you know, she'll take that, don't worry about it. She's lucky to be here, these awful things. And when I found out, I was just about to send the book to the publisher. <laughs> actually, the book had been sent to the publisher. And I hired a lawyer, which is something I had never done. Mm. I hired a, a lawyer and I said, I want to write about it. If I'm talking about, if I'm always telling people, stand up and speak your truth and what affects one directly affects all indirectly and justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I'm, you know, quoting Dr. King's, you know, letter from a Birmingham jail and I'm doing all of this and I can't speak up for myself. So I said, I want to write in a forward, all these indignities. And what do you think? And my lawyer said, well, they could fire you. <laughs> um, they may ask you not to come back. Is that okay with you? He said, you'll probably have a hell of a lawsuit. I'll tell you that. And it won't look great for them to do that. But that could happen. If not now, maybe later. There are usually consequences for, for speaking out. And I thought I've spent so much of my career speaking out for others and asking people to be witnesses 
<laughs> at, at their own peril. I mean, sometimes my witnesses had to be put into the WITSEC program and I convinced them to do it. That wasn't anything I was facing. So I wrote the forward fully expecting actually to be fired. And the strangest thing happened. I got a call from the president of Disney and he said, I read your book. And I was like waiting for the, and you can't come back. <laughs> he just said, I am sorry. And this type of thing shouldn't happen. And you are a valued member of our family and you are a star. And we are going to recalibrate our relationship with you. And we are going to make you a voice within this company for diversity and inclusion and equity. And since then, I have been given a position of, of power within the company. And it's been kind of remarkable. So it was worth it, but it, I, I took a chance. And every time I speak about it, I feel like I'm taking a chance, <laughs> but it's worked. It's, it's worked out for me. So I would tell everybody, you have to speak your truth. You really do. Right. And I mean, I think if your story is any example of that, it's the positive impact of speaking your truth that can come from that. And the fact that you received an apology that I, along with many, feel that you were deserved. As we mentioned, you have a background in the law. And as such, you are turned to on The View quite often to read a legal note or provide <laughs> legal context. Is it ever difficult having to modulate between having an opinion on something versus playing the role of fact checker? Yes. And, you know, that's the thing these days about journalism. I think that it's always been just the facts, ma'am, when it comes to journalism. And I think that's smart because people need to trust you. Legal journalism is a new space right? There aren't that many. In fact, I think I'm one of the only legal journalists. Well, I am the only legal journalist of color on network television. So I'm in a unique space. And, and so I try everything that I say, if you really listen to it, is all fact-based. I don't say, I feel this way because, you know, I, I generally state facts. You know, anything that I say is based on that. But I do find it difficult when people are, are trying to sort of hide or disguise rather opinions as fact, because Lester Holt just received the Murrow Award and he said it really well, I think. And he said, you know, we have to stop coming to this place where we're saying both sides deserve the same amount of exposure and time. That's not really true. Misinformation doesn't really deserve um, time because misinformation led to an insurrection on our capital. So I don't have that much trouble, I think, you know, modulating anymore because I, I think what I am saying is all fact-based. I believe that. I don't traffic in misinformation. And I also think that before people used to say, well, you know, you can't talk about race or you can't talk about issues within the LGBTQ community and you can't talk about things within marginalized communities if you are from those communities. And I don't think that is true. I think that being from a marginalized community is my superpower, right? I think that gives me that special perspective that other people don't have. And so if I'm giving you the facts based on my experience, that makes what I am saying, I think, more trustworthy. Mm. 
Let's speak about one of those moments in particular that really had me jumping out of my seat. <laughs> You've been a vocal supporter of the LGBTQ plus community on and off the show. Mm -hmm. In June 2019, you gave an impassioned speech on the show in which you said, quote, I know Jesus would be attending the Pride Parade. This was in response to a Catholic bishop who tweeted that Pride events are, quote, harmful for children. Mm -hmm. You always consistently don't bumble over pronouns as so many do, and you refer to trans people regularly as our transgender brothers and sisters. So I'm wondering, what does allyship mean to you? Well, it means everything. I, I will tell you a bit about my background. My grandmother's best friend was transgender. So I grew up with Sylvia as, as a little girl. And for me, Sylvia was Sylvia. My cousin, my first cousin is a lesbian. My goddaughter is a lesbian. And I never realized, to be quite honest, that people were so close-minded and discriminated against the LGBTQ plus community so very much. Maybe it's because I grew up in the Bronx or grew up with such an open-minded family. I was just so horrified when I learned how pervasive this discrimination was. And it almost seemed to me like it was okay to discriminate against this community. And, you know, I've been a lifelong Catholic. And when I learned that that type of discrimination was pervasive within my own faith, honestly, it caused me to leave the church for quite a while. Mm. And it was only after befriending Father Edward Beck, who was the contributor on CNN, and speaking to some others that I went back with the thought, I'm going to go back, but I'm going to be very open about my disgust with the Catholic Church on that issue. And I think it's my duty to do that. And so, you know, my children, one of my son's best friends just transitioned because I raised my children in the way I was raised. And so I felt, I felt very strongly about making that statement that Jesus would go to pride parade. I think, I think Jesus would be like the grand marshal. <laughs> I, I just really believe that. Um, I, I truly believe that. And I, I got a lot of flack actually from the Catholic church for that. And that still disgusts me, unfortunately. And it disgusts me that, or I should say, I'm displeased that Pope Francis didn't go far enough in terms of gay marriage. You know, we have a really long way to go with um, the Catholic Church, unfortunately. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Yeah, we certainly do. But I think that was just such a, a such an incredible moment. And I know so many people were just so, it was so lovely to see somebody defending the LGBTQ plus community on a platform like The View. I didn't know it was going to be such a big deal, by the way. I, I was surprised. <laughs> I mean, I got like, I don't know, like thousands of letters and stuff at the, at the show, like thousands. Now tell me this much, that is a, an example of an issue that I feel like people would have, those letters would have been divided because I feel like there's a lot of people on my side of the aisle that are like, yes, Sonny, thank you so much for speaking out. Mm -hmm. And then obviously, as you mentioned, people on the side of the Catholic Church who feel they are in alignment with that bishop. How did you sort of calibrate the difference between people that were in agreement with you versus those in opposition? I will tell you, the majority of people were very supportive, which I, I, I was just surprised at the outpouring. Yeah. I was surprised that so many people reached out. And I was not surprised by the people saying that I was going to go to hell and my children were going to go to hell. And, you know, because the people with the keyboard courage, you know, on social media that are living in their parents' basements are, you know, they're always out there. <laughs> you know, they would never say it to your face, but, you know, that's common. But what is uncommon was just the, the thousands of letters I got. That was, that was, that was pretty spectacular, actually. I have to imagine for a lot of people out there that having someone like you on television affirming the fact that this, what he says is not everyone's truth. It is not the truth for all. I think that means a lot for a lot of people, especially those that sort of use the bishop's words as sort of the reason why they will not accept LGBTQ plus people in their lives. Yeah, and it's not, it's not truth according to the Bible. It's not true. It's just not true. Anyone that knows scripture knows that's not true. Right. So you mentioned those keyboard warriors and, and you know, <laughs> you are very familiar by this point with the fact that the view just incites people in such a way. Good, bad, indifferent. No, excuse me, not indifferent. Good, bad, never indifferent. Yes. Does it frustrate you how harsh the media and social media alike can be on the ladies of the view? I think it frustrates some of my co-hosts much more than it frustrates me. It's, look, this is an iconic show and we're the number one talk show in the country, even when you take into consideration syndicated shows right. just across the board. And we talk about issues that you're not even supposed to talk about like at your dinner table with your close friends and family. You know, we talk about race, we talk about sex, we talk about religion, we talk about politics, we talk about money. You're not supposed to talk about any of those things. So we don't talk fluff. And of course, people have strong feelings about it. So I knew going into it that there was going to be a shift in terms of how the show was going to be tackling these difficult issues. They hired me because of that, right? That, because of that shift, right? So I welcome the discussion because if we don't talk about these things then we don't get anywhere right i think it bothers some of the co-hosts more than it bothers me i kind of welcome that kind of discussion what about the ways in which social media can often take a clip from the view and repurpose it out of context <laughs> and because you know some mornings i wake up and i log on to twitter around noon and some clip is going around <laughs> that i had watched a half an hour earlier and not thought anything of it, but then I sort of see it taken out and I'm like, oh, I see what the internet's gonna do with this. Yeah. Is that ever frustrating? Sometimes I'm like, wow, cat fight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they hate each other. That's kind of surprising to me just because 
we do get into it, but that's our job. And we're going to be on the show again tomorrow. <laughs> so it's frustrating because we try to do the very best job that we can do. And we try to do it in such an elegant way most of the time. We don't always get it right, but most of the time. And what is especially frustrating is when these clips not only just travel on social media, that's fine, but when they are played in snippets on other shows, and then the viewers of those shows start taking it out of context and attacking us. That, That I do find frustrating. Yeah, I can always tell when someone that's sharing a view clip is a viewer of the view versus sort of someone that's popping in for a viral moment. It always shows. Yeah, that is frustrating. And I wish that these hosts on other shows were more responsible. Agree. (laughs) Why do you think it is that there exists and has long existed this fascination and mythology around the backstage goings-on of this show? (laughs) And do you correlate that at all to misogyny? Yeah, I've had to think about that a lot lately because as we've gained in prominence, I was shocked at the number of articles. (laughs) They just kept on coming out. And so much of it just wasn't true. And I had never really been subjected to that before. And I started to think like, one, why is everybody so interested in this? And two, who's lying about it? (laughs) Are they just making it up? Just where is it coming from? I think, yes, if it were a group of guys doing this, like on ESPN, which they often are, it just wouldn't be happening. But I guess there isn't another show with five strong women with different opinions talking about these types of topics. And it's something traditionally, right, that women don't do. My friends do it. I know Megan's friends do it. Joy's friends do it. So I'm kind of surprised that these leaks happen and less so lately, I think, but that people sort of attack us in this way. But I think it it does probably have a lot to do with the fact that we're women, Mm. which is unfortunate. Yeah. Do you feel like it's changed at all in terms of over the last year, there seems to be, and this is, you know, from my backseat view, there seems to be more respect placed on the view over the last year in realizing how smartly this show has navigated the circumstance. And I'm not just talking about COVID, even through the 2020 election. Do you feel like people are putting some more respect on the name of The View lately? I do. And that's been really great. You know, I think it all started actually with the New York Times Magazine article. I really do. Which also kind of came out of nowhere. And when it was, you know, how did The View become the most important political show in America? All of a sudden, you know, we were getting, I I know I got an email, I think from George Stephanopoulos, which was like, congratulations. I thought, oh, wow. You know, (laughs) That's something, right? When you've got George saying that, I've got similar emails from a lot of different people. And I think in that sense, um, people took note. People took note that, wow, you know, these women are changing the conversation. People are listening to what we say. And, you know, we have over 3 million viewers a day. And if you look at the top rated let's say, you know, Anderson Cooper, because I used to work at CNN, on an average day, he gets about 500,000 viewers, right? On a really good day, Anderson will get a million viewers. Yeah, We get 3 million viewers on like a regular day. And I think once people started looking at those numbers, they took note 
every single political candidate has to come on our show. Has to. They have to. And none of them get a pass. They're going to be asked not, you know, what's your favorite color? They're not going to be asked that. They're going to be asked policy questions. And I think that is really wonderful for a woman show to be taken that seriously by the political elite. I'm reminded of Raphael Warnock coming on The View the morning after the Georgia special election. And I just was like, that's one of those moments where, where is he going to go? Everyone wants to talk to him right now. Of course he's going to go to The View. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we actually get calls now. Can I? I'm running for office. Can I come on The View? And, you know, during our Hot Topics meeting, we're asked, do you want to talk to this person? Do you want to talk to that person? And we're always like, bring them on. Yeah, we want to chat. We want to talk. We want to hear what they have to say. Absolutely. And I want to add one thing to this. This show is not only so highly rated, it's this highly rated nearly 25 years into its run. (laughs) And I think not for nothing... Television is a difficult business. You know this well. To have those kind of ratings is a difficulty unto itself. To maintain those ratings and to grow on those ratings, whole other territory. So, I mean, as you said, the view is iconic, plain and simple. (laughs) Let me ask you about this. I've wanted to ask you about this for so long. Whenever you refer to the 44th president (laughs) of the United States, you refer to him without batting a lash as the, quote, former disgraced, twice impeached president. The former you know, disgraced, twice impeached president, former twice impeached, disgraced uh, president, twice impeached, disgraced former president, former disgraced, twice impeached President Trump. And I've said it over and over again, former twice impeached, disgraced President Trump, former disgraced, twice impeached President Trump. (laughs) How much is that you being shady? And how much is that you just calling it like you see it? (laughs) I guess it's a little bit of both. I started adding one term. (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know I just I I started to just think like you know I remember the disrespect that former President Obama got after his two terms and it was Mr. Obama and even during his presidency Mr. Obama and I thought this this man left in total disgrace and you have people calling him Mr. President. And I was thinking, no, let's call it what he is. He is the former disgrace, twice impeached, one term president. And if he would like to take on that moniker, then I am happy to call him that. But just Mr. President or President Trump or former president, that doesn't really cut it. I think we call him what he is. And I'm happy to call him that. But just President Trump doesn't quite, that that doesn't have the ring of truth to it. I agree. And I love the way that you execute it because it's always (laughs) just so smooth. If you catch it, you catch it. If you miss it, you miss it. Let me tell you, I catch it every single time. I want to turn out, I have a question from a longtime fan of yours that they submitted a voice memo. Hi, Sunny. It's Kevin from the Deja The View podcast. We are such big fans of yours, and we think The View is so lucky to have you. And so I wanted to ask you a question about The View, and it's about the show's 5,000th episode, where you interviewed none other than Don Jr. and Kimberly the Best is Yet to Come, Gilfoyle. And I was reading that on that day, 
that there were some Trump supporters in the studio audience that were actually heckling the co-hosts a little bit in the commercial breaks. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the vibe was like in the studio that day and how do you prepare in those situations where you know that an interview has the potential to get a little bit more contentious than usual? Thanks for taking my question and love and appreciate everything that you do. <laughs> I love Deja the View. I think they are terrific. <laughs> All the hosts do listen to, to the podcast. It's so much, so much fun. You know, that day was pretty remarkable um, in that, you know, the, the audience was like electric. And I don't look out into the audience typically before showtime. I'm upstairs, I'm socializing, you know, I'm getting hair and makeup done. And so I saw them as I walked out and there was sort of like a sea of like red hats, make America great again hats. And you typically don't see that in New York. <laughs> um, and so there were certainly a lot of plants in the audience, which is kind of unusual because you have to get tickets to the show and guests do sometimes get to bring some people, but they were pretty prominent and very rowdy. And so, yeah, we were heckled, which is, you know, par for the course. The way I prepare is that, you know, Barbara Walters told me because she auditioned me personally. And she told me that when um, you have a guest, never to forget that when you have a guest on your show, that it's like having someone come to your home and seated at your dinner table. And I took that to heart because I really do feel that way. It's not an easy show to do. You're in front of 3 million people and in the audience, you're in front of 180. And while we do it every day, it's hard. And I will tell you that, you know, I used to work with Kimberly Guilfoyle at Fox News and we never had an issue with each other. She's half Puerto Rican as am I. Um, we've spoken Spanish to each other. We had a, a, you know, she's a former prosecutor, as am I. We had a lot in common. She was not exhibiting the types of behavior that <laughs> you see now. I even went to her first husband, Eric Valencia's the opening of one of his stores. Wow. Um, some furniture store years ago. So we kind of go way back. And I, we, we had a good relationship. And I had never met Donald Trump Jr. before. I will tell you that he looked like a scared little boy looking for approval. I read people, I think, fairly well. I did train with the FBI in terms of um, personalities and how to examine witnesses. And that is exactly what I saw. It is what I continue to see. I felt sorry for him. So I implemented sort of the Barbara Walters guest rule. And when they were taunting and from the audience, the, the obvious plants that Donald Trump Jr. felt like he needed mm. um, to get through, you know, a 37 minute interview, I just felt pity. Yeah, and I have to hand it to all of the co-hosts that day for really keeping the train on the tracks. But I have to ask, like, I wonder in those situations, not even specific to John Jr., but sometimes you have a guest on who has an agenda that's bigger than just their appearance, that is hoping to make waves and sort of hoping to poke the bear in a way and sort of cause friction to generate headlines that perhaps have nothing to do with what they're on there to promote, but just to get themselves in the news. So how do you contend with, as you mentioned, wanting to deploy the Barber method, 
guest in your home, but also recognizing that that guest in your home might not have come there with the best of intentions. Yeah, you know, I still abide by that rule, but I will make the exception for the guest that comes in to attack one of my sisters on at the table. Just like I would throw a guest out of my home if they attack my children um, or my mom. If you attack Joy Behar, I'm coming for you. You know, if you attack one of my co-hosts, I'm going to protect them. And, and there have been occasions where people come on and, and they're trying to get some kind of ridiculous viral moment. They're being intellectually dishonest instead of just coming there to really, you know, have a, an honest conversation. And if you're coming on The View, seeking my attention, you're going to get it. And you generally won't win that. Well said. <laughs> Speaking of one of your View sisters, I spoke to Megan McCain ahead of our interview today. Oh, I was like, good. is there any topic that I should bring up with Sunny? And she said, of course, to mention your farm that you've cultivated at your home. And then she told me to ask you about Omarosa. And then she put the bulging eyes emoji after that. Is there anything you want to say about that? Megan tells all my secrets. Uh, <laughs> you know, Omarosa was one of those for me because Megan definitely gets more emotional than I do. She isn't as in control of her emotions as I am. That will come with time for her, I am sure. But you know, she gets she gets angry, and I get angry too. But I just hide it better. And um, you know, I told her about the Barbara Walters rule, and you know, we try to everybody tries to implement it. But Omarosa really took me out of my. Um, <laughs> took, took, took me out of it because she came on to attack Joy. She right. came on to attack her. And Joy wouldn't really let me respond in kind, which is a credit to Joy. It's a credit to Joy. She is the guest that I disliked the most, actually. That, and, and we've had a lot of them. You have. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, that I, that I haven't enjoyed. But I enjoyed her the least. Because if anything, what you have to understand is, you know, Joy is a septuagenarian. She has been on this show since the very beginning. Joy holds no grudges. She doesn't even remember. God bless her. Like, I wish I, I were more like Joy. Like, she doesn't hold a grudge because she doesn't remember what people said about her. Or to her. <laughs> yes, She's like, ah, whatever. Who cares? Who cares? Um, and that's real Joy. I, you know, I'm not like that. Like, I remember it. And she did not want to go after Omarosa. She did not want to go after her, which was interesting to me. So you've been on The View now for almost five years. And I'm curious, I have witnessed, I was gonna say you get so much better at your job, but I wanna note that you came in at a very high bar. But in what ways do you feel like you've gotten better at your job in that time? I, I do think I've gotten better at it. I think that I'm more succinct. I think that I'm more focused in my view. I think that I'm almost more passionate about these issues. And I know exactly what I want to get across, you know, because the show with all our commercials and our ads and that sort of thing, it's really about 37 minutes. And on days when we're all there, there are five of us. And our segments usually run about, you know, 
seven minutes, six minutes, four, four, three, something like that. And so we get about a minute 30 to talk. And so I've realized through the years that minute 30 is so precious. And I think a lot before I say anything. So when I prepare, I realize now that I think about everything I, I will say, not just for how it will reflect on me and on my family, but most importantly, how my words will reflect and reverberate within those communities that need representation, right? And so now that I keep that in mind every single day, I think I can be a more effective communicator. Hmm. And, and that's the skill that I've learned and gotten much better at, I think. I'm going to say you've mastered it, you know? Like, I, I, maybe you won't say it, but I'm going to say it. I'm going to throw it to Matt, who has a question for you. Okay. Thank you. So I am always fascinated with how certain professions, like lawyers, doctors, or politicians, are portrayed in movies, TV, and books. What's the wildest and most outlandish thing you've seen a lawyer do in fiction that is nothing like real life, nothing that you can do as an actual lawyer? <laughs> What is that movie that says, no, you're out of order. You're out of order. You're out of order. <laughs> that was an Al Pacino. <laughs> that would so. never happen um, because you would be held in contempt and then we'd get kicked out. Um, lawyers generally don't lose it in court. You, you really don't, especially not lawyers in high stake cases. You know, I just saw, oh gosh, it was a, terrific movie the trial of the chicago seven mm, yeah and you could see the lawyer fighting and wanting to get really crazy that was much more accurate of a depiction than some of the stuff that i've seen where lawyers are like no it just doesn't happen like that because you know i'm a criminal lawyer so in criminal cases you're fighting for the life of either your client or the lives of victims, you know, you're fighting for justice. The last thing you want to do is to be the story. The last thing you want to do is to make this error and somehow just screw it up for someone else. It's such a high bar and you have such a duty, a duty yeah. to perfection really, which is why people tell me like, how do you keep it so classy? How do you keep it so elegant? How do you keep your mind about you on the view when everything is going crazy? Well because that's my training. You know, you have to keep it like that. If not, it all goes to crap. Like you, <laughs> you just have to keep it even. Totally. Speaking of elegance, I do want to mention the Christopher John Rogers floral, the yellow floral look oh. you wore on the show recently was absolutely divine. And Christopher has a big hello to you. He's so excited oh. to have you on here. Um, he was our very first guest on the podcast. Really? I have two more things that I just got that, uh, that I'm going to wear. I, I mean, think he is spectacular. I the best. And I really appreciate you shouting out his name on oh, the view. I good. think that speaks yeah. volumes about the ways in which you, you pay it forward and make sure that you're spotlighting people like him well i think it's really really important it's something that i've been working with fran taylor on she's our stylist and i told her i said you know i want to start highlighting black designers i was like can you start pulling for me black designers because we got three million people watching us and people are always asking like what are you wearing? wearing and she was like yeah you know who do you want and i was like I've been seeing this work by uh, Sergio Hudson, Christopher Johns. So I started just like pulling some stuff and she's like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And lo and behold, people are like, 
who are you wearing? And I'm like, oh, I am wearing this. And it's been really, really wonderful to be able to, in some small way, just get them the, the credit that they deserve, right? Totally, yeah. Yeah. He's amazing. He's amazing. You look great. And uh, Wendy Williams also has been totally upping her style game lately. Yeah, totally. So let's talk about your books, plural, because there (laughs) is more than one. Let's focus on your first book. It has a big theme of having to navigate different worlds and different identities in your pursuits, both personal and professional. You touch on alcoholism, drug abuse, and violence that you witnessed in your childhood. I imagine it has to be difficult putting these experiences on paper, knowing you'd be sharing them with the world. But I'm curious to know more about what it was like for you on a personal level, having to revisit and crystallize some of these moments that may have long been tucked away and for good reason, maybe. Yeah, it was so much harder, Evan, than I thought it would be. You know, I have been asked to write this book for a bit and I was like, "Ah, I'm not gonna write write a book. Because I actually thought that there were more failures than successes in the book. And, and, you know, who wants to hear again about like poverty and drug abuse and addiction, especially in, you know, the black and brown community. And I was like, I'm not going to do it. And then um, Justice Sotomayor, I was helping her with her book tour, her children's book tour. And she was like, you know, Mijita, when are you going to write your book? And I was like, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it justice. You know, there's so much failure in it and sadness. And she was like, no, that's why you have to write it because People, it'll, it'll be aspirational. People, people will see themselves in it, you know, through the struggle you've, you've accomplished things. And she was talking about how when she wrote her, her book and I was like, yeah, but you're like a justice of the Supreme Court. And I'm like a talk show host. And she was like, no, 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 no. You have to understand it's about accomplishing dreams. And so I started writing it. It kind of poured out of me. I dictated it. And then I had this wonderful writer, Sharice Jones, take my dictation and put it on paper, which I mean, I wrote it in probably three weeks, something like that. It was kind of just poured out of me. What was really painful was doing the audio book because I had to actually say the words. And my mother, when my mother read it, she didn't speak to me for a week. She said, I did not portray her well, which is not true. Um, but uh, she said, your father came out looking, smelling like a rose and I didn't, which is not true. So people were all up in their feelings about it. But for me, the, the hardest chapter to, to do the audiobook for was the motherhood chapter. You know, that was a very painful chapter, actually, a painful period in my life. And I had tucked it away only because, you know, I've got these kids and they're great now and they're doing well. And you kind of forget that part of the journey that was, you know, that kind of threw me into a depression. So it was much harder to do than I thought. And I will never again write about, (laughs) you know, I, I don't know that there will be an I am these truths part two, but I'm glad that I did write it because the reception has been absolutely incredible. And I'm so glad that this book will exist in perpetuity. And I really, I cannot encourage people to read it enough and and learn about your incredible journey to getting where you are today. Why was it so important for you that the book be printed in English and in Spanish? Well, that was Justice Sotomayor too. You know, Spanish is my first language. And um, I actually even took diction courses coming out of college because I had this sort of Puerto Rican lilt, not Rosie Perez lilt, but not unlike that, right? And I was sort of told that if I wanted to be a lawyer or a journalist, a broadcast journalist, that I had to fix that. 
that I had to, and you can still hear it sometimes, but I had to fix that. And I thought, wow, it's not even good to have a little bit of a <laughs> New Eurekan accent. And when I was speaking to Justice Sotomayor and I said, you know, I am gonna write that book. I told her, I think the second time I saw it, I am gonna write it, I'm in the process of doing it. And she said, ah, but it has to be in Spanish and English. And I was like, it, it does, it has to be in Spanish and English, Justice. <laughs> and, and she said, yeah. She said, every book that she does, it's in Spanish and English. And, and that is because there'll be the little girl or little boy that has English as a second language and they're struggling, which by the way, it is a struggle to learn another language. And they'll read your book and they'll read it in their native language and realize that you overcame that as well. And that it's a wonderful thing to speak more than one language. In fact, in this country, we're really one of the only countries in the world that, you know, take pride in the fact that we can only communicate in one language. It's yeah. most people speak more than one tongue, yeah. Um, yeah. but we don't, we don't applaud that in, in the United States. We sort of look down on it. And so I had this sort of epiphany brought on by the justice. Harper one was incredible when I said, would it be okay if we did it in Spanish and English? And they said, uh, you know, por supuesto. So <laughs> there you have it. Talk to me about the itch scratched by penning Summer on the Bluffs. I have to say, I set aside a week to read this, finished it in a weekend. Oh, um, yes! It's just very hard to put down. And I guess that's the best <laughs> thing in a book, right? Like, it's just, I was just soaking it up. And this is a totally different skill set than that of a federal prosecutor, a yes. talk show host, or even a memoirist. And yet, you not only did it, you excelled at it. Thank you! Talk to me about, like, what compelled you to want to write this book? Well, I will tell you, I had so much more fun writing this. <laughs> I had so much more fun, no crying, uh, uh, nothing like that. You know, I traveled a lot before the pandemic. I traveled for work. You know, I gave speeches all around the country. I traveled internationally with my family. You know, my, my husband's family, large part, still lives in Spain. So we would visit his aunts there. And I go into the little bookshops because I read all the time. I never found a like light beach read that I could read before going on vacation that I wanted to read. It was either like very dark, like film noir, uh, which I like those two, like Little Fire Everywhere or, you know, mm. Gone Girl or that sort of thing. But nothing that was like African-American women centered or maybe older women, older and you know, multi-generational, nothing like that. Gossipy, a little gossipy, a little something. I didn't see anything like that. And I, I thought, Toni Morrison said, you know, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And I was like, I should write it. I have to write this book because if I'm looking for this book, other people are looking for the book too. Absolutely. And I love historical fiction. I started thinking, okay, well, there's gotta be a way to talk about the three areas in the United States that black folks were allowed to summer. And those three areas actually are Sag Harbor in the Hamptons and Oak Bluffs in Martha's Vineyard and also High Point in uh, Maryland. And so I did some research and then I just put a pitch together, just a couple of pages. And I went into HarperCollins and they were like, 
we love it. Three book series. I, and then I had to start writing. <laughs> um, um, but it was, it just, that was another one that just kind of poured out of me because those are the places that I go to vacation with my friends. And I actually love every single character in the book. I'm so happy, Evan, that, that you loved it too, because my husband listened to the Audible. He, he only listens to books. My father read the book in a weekend. So men have really responded to this book. And I didn't think they would. So I'm so excited about it. Well, there's a depth to the characters and the journey, but also I have to say I was so excited finishing this knowing that there was more to come because oh. there's something great about just knowing that this is part of a trilogy. Now, in addition to there being more books, this book feels like it's very ripe for a television adaptation. Um, is that something that you've thought about at all? And who are you thinking for Amma? Uh, yes, I have thought about it. I can't quite yet disclose that <laughs> but I can tell you that I have thought about it and so have others um, in terms of AMA you know I have some pictures of actors that I see and I almost see a kind of a Lena Horne-esque actress and what I would love to do is have someone who is almost an unknown, you know, in some of these characters. I also see almost a Tessa Thompson. Love. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. You know, maybe yes. a Tessa Thompson type. There are a lot of, you know, I have sort of a tear sheets. I see an actor and I'm like, oh, you're going to manifest it. Yeah. yeah like, no, I love silly. that. And then I rip it out and I'm like, oh my God you know, that's Amma and I rip it out. So I'm actually looking really forward to seeing this on the screen. Well, I am as well. <laughs> a couple last questions before I let you go. I reread both of your books in preparation for today. And I know you read the books of the guests on The View. Ted Cruz ugh, famously tried <laughs> to accuse you of not reading his book when he appeared on the show. And you made it clear, very clear that you had done your homework. Why is it important for you to dedicate the time despite the fact that you don't necessarily need to? Well, you know, I think that it just, and thank you, Evan, for reading and rereading. <laughs> I guess I'm forever the A student. I, I aspire to be excellent. I think the other thing is it's almost insulting to a guest who has taken the time to work and to put in the work in a movie or a play or a book and you're interviewing them for their project, but you haven't read it. Right. I don't think the interview can be as robust. I don't think it can be as informative. Um, if you haven't done your work, if you haven't done the work, but I think that the job of a talk show host is to be very well prepared when you're interviewing a subject. And I just don't know how you can interview someone on their book if you haven't read it. And I think it's really obvious when it happens. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like you see it and it's sort of, I find it insulting. I found it insulting the gall of Ted Cruz, <laughs> yes. not only accusing you of it, but also the fact that you did read the book. And of it's course. just, yeah, I mean, but. It's, it just seems to me that he must not watch our show. Yes, because, which he's missing you know, out. I have a lot of yeah. friends, you know, that say, oh, I know you must have read that book. And of course, you know, of course I read it. And I, we have guests that are going to come on the show and we'll actually, this is a little bit of tea, we'll actually make sure that I'm going to be on the show that day because they know that I have read the book. And I think that's a compliment to me. And I think it's a compliment to the show. 
because it's a draw for them. They know, oh, well, if Sunny's on there, she has seen the movie, she has seen the play, she has read the book. Without a doubt. Okay, two last questions before I let you go. <laughs> we know you love Bridgerton, The Crown, Little Fires Everywhere. What are your pop culture obsessions from your youth? Oh, from my youth? That's a good question. You know, I'm a voracious reader, right? So I'm really obsessed with fantasy and sci-fi and have always been. So I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe like over and over and over again. Yeah, kind of strange. I read The Hobbit and, and all of those books. I was a Star Wars fanatic and freak. I was much more of a Star Wars freak than Star Trek. I know that that's the thing, Star Trek versus Star Wars. I did not, <laughs> I'm not a Star, Star Trek person. Sorry, Trekkies. Uh, like, Don't I'm, tell that's a whoopee. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I just call whoopee and, and Star Trek. It's terrible. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I love, I love Star Wars. So anything sci-fi based, was my thing when I when when I was a kid. Fantasy and, and sci-fi would be my, mm. my pop culture. I love that thing. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Obviously, this has been a challenging year for everybody, but I know it has been especially for your family. I want to send my condolences to you and your family. I want to know. Tell me something good that has come for you from this last year. Hmm. Yeah, it has been a tough year because you know my in-laws passed away within three days of each other. So my husband is um, still in very deep grief, um, as you can imagine. And, and all of us are really. But I think that the thing that it came out is that we got to spend a lot more time with each other. You know, I was traveling all the time. I'd stay late at the show preparing for us for the next day. My son, you know, was headed off to college and is an athlete. Um, my daughter is an athlete. She's just a lot of like school and a lot of practices afterwards. And then all of a sudden the world shut down. So for like 14 months, we were all kind of stuck together in the house. And I actually thought we would drive each other nuts, but instead we brought the competition into the house. <laughs> and so we started these family game night traditions and it was every Friday night. And we looked forward to it. It started actually becoming almost every night, but then we had to shut it down because it started getting crazy. But <laughs> it, it became such a tradition that we looked forward to it. And we spent this time together and we, we were hiking together and biking together and running together. You know, we're an active type of group. And it was unbelievable. My favorite game is Clue. I was beating everyone and Gabriel's favorite game is Monopoly and he was beating everyone. And so we were like, you know, Paloma actually also loves Clue and she, no, she loves Scrabble and she was beating people. So it, it was just, it was a, just a great time that we almost rediscovered each other. Mm. And that was, that was pretty special. And my dad moved in with us. He sold his house in, in North Carolina <laughs> and I told him, you know, dad, just put your house on the market because his mother passed away and he, he, she used to live with him. And I said, just put your house on the market. It's not going to sell during a pandemic. And then you'll find a place in Florida. And then it sold within one week. So he's lived here since like October. And so my mom and dad live here and, and the kids have gotten so close to them as well. So that, that's been the, the silver lining for us. No. And the chickens, lest we not and forget the chickens. And my chickens who are laying, I get a dozen eggs a day. <laughs> and, you know, I'm building a new chicken coop. I'm also building a goat run for the two goats I'm getting that Manny doesn't know about. 
Um, He's going to be thrilled. (laughs) (laughs) I was telling Megan yesterday, I was like, here are pictures of of the goats that I'm getting. She was like, does Nanny know about it? I was like, well, not yet. I'm building it behind the garage. So he hasn't seen it yet. And I'm, I'm having, you know, I'm, I'm building my farm and I'm having a good time. So. Love it. Sunny, <laughs> I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. You are an absolute icon of so many fields, not just of you. I want to encourage everyone to check out both of these books. I really, I know that they couldn't be more different, but you kind of <laughs> just got to read them both. One of them can be your beach read and one of one of them can be your at home with a glass of wine later that evening read. <laughs> but do check out both of these books, Summer on the Bluffs, I Am These Truths. And I just want to, again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was so much fun. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut Up Evan is produced by Matt Storm, with associate production by Ryan Killian Kraus, and social media by Sean Ross. An extra special thank you to our Patreon supporters, without whom none of this would be possible. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.